0: Like I mentioned many times before, it's always a blessing to, uh, to be up here and to be charged with um, you know, bringing God's word. Uh, do not take it lightly. Um, there's much of a diligent study here, and there's a little bit of um, fear. I guess not much of a fear of, of people, which is a very easy thing to do, but it's a fear of just bringing you the, the right words. Because words are very, very important. Two Christians and two people. It's there where ideas are formed and beliefs are formed, and it causes us to do the things we do. And so, yeah, I don't see how Matt does this in a week. Prepares. Um, our pastor is bivocational, so that's why he's not here today. Uh, so I'm filling in, and you didn't get the message because you're here. I know, I've said that before, so it gets old. Anyway, uh, the passage we're looking at today is James 1 13 through 16, and that's what I'm going through is James, so, Um, and that's where we're currently at. Uh, And the title is called Do Not Be Deceived. So I wanted to recap first on James 1 uh, 1 through 12. Uh, briefly, so we can have a good context of leading in to what's uh, being spoken on what we're being what's teaching uh, being taught today. So James one one through twelve, we saw that God does give us trials and allows temptations in our lives so that our faith may be tested, and it is through this testing of our faith that we are strengthened and conformed to Christ. It is by the testing or trials in which our weaknesses are revealed. What are these weaknesses? There are many, but just a few. Dependence on what our hands, our own hands have created. Selfish ambitions and vain glory. Love of the world and things of the world. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, boastful pride of of life. Lack of complete trust and confidence and complete devotion to the Lord. And the list just goes on and on. But we know God uses our weaknesses, and that his power is revealed and perfected through this weakness. Recall what Paul says in 2 Corinthians twelve eight through 10 There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, with persecutions or, uh, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong." So be well-content with weaknesses that are revealed by temptations and trials. First, knowing that God's grace is sufficient for you. Two, that Christ's power is perfected in you. And third, knowing that it produces endurance, making you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we'll move on to today's text, James 1, 13-16. And if you'd please stand with me. If you're able, as we read the Holy Scriptures... James one through 13-16. And God's word says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Let's pray. Gracious God, you are holy and perfect and magnificent to us. Some things are just unfathomable. It's hard to understand all your ways. Lord, grant us ears to hear your word Hearts to receive your word and that we may be conformed to Christ. Let uh, the words be spoken here, This be yours. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. So, verse 13. <clears throat> so, notice. That he first starts off he says when he is tempted this just is a small thing but it's it's not an if it says when okay so we know from studying the previous verses of James also that the believer can and is to expect trials and temptations more importantly though we see that God does not tempt he does not solicit one to sin he cannot be tempted by evil he is perfect and holy and as author Pink Writes he is absolute purity unsullied by even the shadow of sin. First John one through five says God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God does not sin. God does not tempt. But he does allow trials in our lives. He does allow us to be tempted by Satan and taken away by our own lustful desires. And as verse fourteen and fifteen state. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, or brings forth sin, as the KJV says. John Flavel explains it this way, a Puritan. First, there is irritation of the object. Okay, this, I mean, Picture with me here, if you're... Something that you fall to, or you know, some maybe desires or lusts of the past, or something you're strung with right now. Okay? Maybe for a child it could be um, a cookie or something, I don't know. You know. Something you've been told not to take any more of. Okay? So first, there's an irritation of the object. Maybe it's a cookie. Okay? Or that power it has to provoke our corrupt nature, which is either done by the real presence of the object in your hand, or held out in imagination before the soul. This follows the motion of the appetite, or lust of the flesh, which is provoked by the fancy representing it as a sensual good. Then there is consultation in the mind about the best means of accomplishing it. Next follows the election or choice of the will, and lastly, the desire and full engagement of the will to do it. It's acted upon. It's complete. As in the case in the fall of man, Eve was tempted by Satan. But look specifically what he made appealing to her. Genesis 3.6 When the woman saw that the tree, one, was good for food, two, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. This is what was for Eve. This is what was held out in imagination before her soul. Okay. So then, she continued, and she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So you can see how she was carried away, enticed by her own lusts. Eve was led to believe that the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was desirable and good, but it was not Satan's fault. Did Satan play a part in it? Yes. As she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. But it was her prideful heart and lust of the flesh that enticed her, deceived her, and provoked her to follow through with her sin. So I wanted to apply this to a common misconception or belief about the temptation and sin of homosexuality. The psychologists and the experts of the world would have you believe that it is something you were born with. I've talked to many people like this. And maybe this is your belief, and you know, but uh, this is why I wanted to address this. There's, many, there's much confusion in the world today about this, and there's many pastors. I even talked to Matt about the, this week, early in the week, um, just how even some pastors are trying to make this homosexuality, this new type of marriage, pure, even in the church. They would have you believe it's an inherited trait or gene, and there is nothing that can be done about it except to accept it as reality, and to embrace it and just do whatever feels right and makes one happy. We hear that very much. That's what we seek for in our lives, to be, to be happy. But homosexuality is not some gene. It's something not something that was one was born with. It is simply one that has been carried away by his own lustful desires and idolatries. So we must understand: for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, sexual immorality, thefts, false testimony, and slander. God is not the author of these; it is born out of one's own heart. So, next we're next going to look at Romans one twenty-six to thirty-one. Help explains this. Romans 1, 26-31. We'll go back to 24 as well, but just in that area. If you want to join me. For this reason, God gave them over. Now pay attention to this, this phrase here. He does it three times. He says it three times. God gave them over. For this reason, God gave them over to vile passions. For even their woman exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving themselves a penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, gave them over to a depraved mind, to do those things which are not fitting or natural, and being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of evil, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. Backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evils, disobedient to parents. Children heard that one? Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgivable, giving, unmerciful. So I mentioned the, the phrase, God gave them over. It's also, I think, back in 24 as well. But this occurs three times. God gave them over. He gave them over to what? Verse 24, it's in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, to a depraved mind, to do those things which are not proper or fitting. Matthew Henry comments on this, God gave them up in a way of righteous judgment as the just punishment of their idolatry taking off the bridle, removing the bridle of restraining grace, leaving themselves, leaving them to themselves or letting them alone. For his grace is his own, he is debtor to no man. He may give or withhold his grace at pleasure. There is no new thing for God, or this is no new, no new thing for God, to give men up to their lusts, to send them strong delusions, to let Satan loose upon them, to lay stumbling blocks before them, and yet God is not the author of sin, but herein infinitely, just and holy. So why did God give them over? Why did He take off the bridle of restraining grace? Children do you, why, why is it that you bridle a horse or an animal?: Yeah, guide. To run wild, throw you off, or whatever might happen. I haven't ridden a horse for like 30 years. So, So why leave them to themselves? Why remove the bridle of this restraining grace? You see four answers in verse 21 through 24 and 28. First, verse 21 For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. 2. Verses 21 to 22. They became vain in their thoughts, professing to be wise. 3. Verse 23. uh, 23, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. And 4. This is verse 25. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Or King James Version. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge and they their thinking. I've read many of the books, some weird books, where men have rejected God's wisdom and knowledge, and they just go out on strange tangents. So it just made me think of that. Do you see how one is carried away by the deceitfulness of one's sinful nature? Too easily do we forget God. So be careful to honor Him, and give thanks, bridal, your prideful wisdom, give all glory and honor to God alone who created the universe by his spoken words, who is the source of all good things, the source of all wisdom, the source of all blessings. Acknowledge him in all that you do, in all your ways, and seek to glorify him in everything. Don't let the world have you believe that homosexuality, theft, or alcoholism, or depression are diseases that are be blamed on past traumas. Is there some relation there? Probably, but, but yes, these are diseases in a sense. They are sin diseases and can only be rectified or completely rectified and cleansed by the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe, and your sins be wiped away. So moving on to verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Here, Paul goes on to describe, I mean, is that James. <laughs> James, sorry. Goes on to describe the process of sin and its relation to lust. So, what's the process of sin? I'll, I'll get to that, but two main truths I want to present to you here. One is lust considered sin. Lust considered sin. Two, Sin brings forth death. So some, we'll want number one. Some say that lust without consent is not truly sin. You may question this to yourself. Or not until lust is brought one to action is it a sin. But Jesus plainly says in uh, Matthew five twenty eight. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery. I think most of us are, are familiar with that. So, Mary committed lust with her, for her uh, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5, 28. Clearly, we know adultery is a sin, right? The only difference between the two is that lust is an inward sin, okay, unseen by man. But we see adultery as an outward sin. It's visible, but it can be seen by men. But the commonality between the two. Is, but they are both sin to God. Let me explain further. So again, look at 14. Then, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. So when has lust conceived, is the main question right now. When, when has lust conceived? So Thomas Manton writes, Lust has conceived as soon as it begins to form motions and impulses into desires and to ripen things into a consent. Now the excitement or delight which arises from such carnal thoughts and apprehensions is called the conception of sin. So the excitement or delight which arises from such carnal thoughts and apprehensions is called the conception of sin. So this is what to be aware of. So you see how important it is to cut off lust. But the first inclination, the very first desire, the first impulse. This is why it's so critical to pray to God for his restraining grace that keeps you from temptation. Lead me not into temptation. But don't be mistaken here with this prayer. God doesn't lead you into temptation. We already saw that God doesn't tempt. John Piper states, uh, What it teaches us to pray is that temptation does not take us in. Don't lead me into temptation. Deliver me from the evil that is set before me. So two <clears throat> Number two: sin brings forth death. So I make this argument that the conception of lust is sin, because sin has consequences. Sin brings forth death. Just as work, as we work, it yields wages, right? So does sin yield wages, wages of death. Romans 6:23. Thomas Manson again. Death may be applied as the common fruit to every degree in this series. Like the series, for example, from the, from the conception of lust to the, the consummation of the sin or the act, okay? the whole series. To the conception as well as the production, and to the production as well the consummation of it. So it basically says that death may be applied to the entire process from when lust is conceived to when it is acted out to completion. That's why I continue to hit on this. I just want to understand. There is no room to make light of your lusts. For example, men. I speak to myself as well. There should be no lustful mannerisms toward another woman other than for your wife. Not on the computer, not on calendars, not on movies, not at the beach. When you turn your head to admire another woman, it is simply following through with the first impulse The first notion of lust in your heart, and you are giving birth to sin. That lust needs suppressed in conception and growth before it's ripened. Manton again states, We are so far to abhor sin as to beware of the remote tendencies, yea, to avoid the occasions of it. He continues, What is conceived in the heart is usually brought forth in life and conversation. So think about your hearts. Lust, when it hath conceived, it brings forth sin. That is the reason why Apostle Peter directs a Christian to spend the first care about the heart. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Abstain from fleshly lust, and then have your conversations honest. As long as there is lust in the heart, there will be no cleanness in the conversation. As worms in the wood will at length cause rottenness to appear in that wood. How soon do lust reveal themselves? Pride runneth into the eyes, therefore we read of haughty eyes in Proverbs 6.17. Or into the feet, causing a strutting gait or gesture. A wanton mind peepeth out through wanton eyes and a gazing look. A garish, frothy spirit reveals itself in the vanity of apparel, the things you wear. And a filthy heart, in the rottenness of communication, the eyes, the feet, the tongue, the life, do easily reveal what is seated. In our heart, sin has consequences. For death is the sentence. God is the judge that judges and passes the sentence against the guilty. Psalm one six. Understand though, his sentence, however severe, is always righteous. Revelation sixteen seven says, "True and righteous are your judgments." Every evil work is a breach of God's law. Every sinful thought, word, or action is an evil work. Whoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. 1 John 3.4 So, beloved, be diligent in keeping your heart. Learn the danger of neglecting lusts and thoughts. If these are not suppressed, they will ripen into sins and acts of filthiness. Sin thrives while we are negligent. And not watchful. Romans 13:14 says, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Second 2 Timothy 2:22 2, says, now flee from youthful lusts. It's a good one for you young ones too. Second 2 Timothy 2:22, 2, flee from your youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace. So I want to mention just two more quick things before moving on to verse 16. One, don't just pursue a holy life out of fear of judgment and damnation, but conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ because you love your Father. You do what the Father commands out of tremendous respect and love for your Father, for the Father in heaven. Have a sense of awe and respect for the majesty of God. That is fearing God. Two: don't try to win against your flesh by your own strength, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish, Galatians 5:17. It will be a battle. It is a battle. We were, by nature, children of wrath, Visions three. And it is by this nature of wrath we are condemned and sentenced. But, the good news is, there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus for the law of the Spirit of life. And Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Thomas Boston here. And if the sentence be reversed, you will be habitually tender in your conscience with respect to temptations, sin and duty, and appearances of evil. And as Paul says in Acts 24, 16, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void to offense toward God and toward men. As our gracious pardoning God has said, Go and sin no more. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my brethren. It's interesting, when I got to this verse, I thought it was going to be like a paragraph. But the more I got into it, I'm like, oh my goodness. So this is another half an hour, you know, probably. No, not really. It's getting closer. Okay. Deceived means go astray. Mistaken, led away from truth, or be led into error. Deceived the what? That God is the author of sin and that he tempts you. We might have said that ourselves. We might have had those thoughts ourselves. We might have heard others say that. God tempted me. It's not the case. Again, we go back to 13. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. This is pretty clear, but let's look at a common error. That says, Since God is the creator of all things, therefore he must be the author of sin. And if he's the author of sin, he's the one who tempts and leads one to sin. You know that's not the case, but we might have those thoughts or beliefs. So it made me think of Pharaoh and how God hardened his heart. You know, but is that, when he hardened Pharaoh's heart, is that tempting him or leading him to, into sin? I say no, because one must understand what a hardened heart is in the process of hardening a heart. I don't know if you've really thought about this before. Hopefully my thinking is correct about it. A hardened heart is one that is left completely to his own pride and authority. The bridle has been removed. He answers to no one but himself. Remember, just like a wild horse. Answers to no one but himself. Hence, rejecting the authority of God, or maybe the man that once sat up on that horse, he's rejected. God's grace that once bridled the pride is removed, just like we saw earlier in Romans 1, how God gave them over. God gave them over to a depraved mind, to those things were not fitting, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things. Why? We looked at that as well. For even though they knew God, they didn't honor Him, give thanks, became in their thoughts, professing to be wise, Uh, they did not retain God in their knowledge. Or we can simply say, they forgot God and they rejected Him. Just like Israel did again and again and again, just like we've seen our nation today reject God. You see, the difficult part of sin is swallowing our pride and admitting to the act of it. And not shifting the blame to God or to Satan or to others. Because when... We are in the crucible of trials and temptations. The easy path is to shift the blame to someone or something for the situation we are in. As as, just as Job's wife said, just curse God and die. But Job did not. His lips were clean. So again, God is not the author of sin. I like John Gill's comment on this. For to make God the author of sin or to charge him with being concerned in temptation to sin is a very great error, a fundamental one, which strikes at the nature and being of God and at the perfection of his holiness. It is a denying of him and is one of those damnable errors and heresies which bring upon men swift destruction and therefore to be guarded against, rejected and abhorred by all that profess any regard unto him, his name and glory. You see, it's easy to be led into this error because many parts of the sovereignty of God are difficult to conceive and understand. When we don't understand something, we begin to rely on our own emotions and feelings for truth, or to define truth, or to define our beliefs. Thomas Manton comments on this. Where truths cannot be plainly and easily made out to the apprehension men are apt to swerve from them many truths suffer much because of their intricacy their errors may be so near alike that it is hard to distinguish them remember the nature of man is prone to error and therefore when truth is hard to find out we content ourselves with our own prejudices our truths are encumbered with such difficulty that they which have a mind to doubt and wrangle do easily stumble at it. I know if you've stumbled on certain doctrines, you know, as, as we learn and are, and are conformed to Christ and we grow, and you see something in the Bible, it's like, you know, can you just accept it? There's so many hard truths to understand. You see, our hearts are easily deceived by arrogance, our misinterpretations of hard truths and deceitfulness of sin. Deuteronomy 11.16 says, Beware that your heart is not deceived. Jeremiah 49.16, The arrogance of the heart has deceived you. Hebrews 3.13, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So we must understand that it is sin which dwells in us that deceives us and makes us prone to errors. That's why James warns us, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Listen to what Paul says about this in Romans 7:14 uh, to 24. If you want to turn with me there, uh, it might be good for your eyes to see this as it little gets a little confusing. Romans seven, 14 to 24. But in this, listen to how he takes responsibility for his sin. Romans 7:14 to 24. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but the sin dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin dwells in me. I find then the principle that the evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. From this we can see as a sin that dwells in us, that brings us into temptation, To do the things that we wish not to do. Paul doesn't say that the devil deceived him or made him do it, but he takes complete responsibility and understands that the sin comes from evil within himself. He does not shift the blame. Because he knows that when you blame God, you are striking a blow at his perfect and holy nature. So I'd love to uh, move on to verse 17, but I saw that my last sermon was 50 minutes, and it was never the plan. <laughs> so just to wrap up and we we'll would be done here. Three things. Take complete responsibility for your thoughts and actions. Don't play the blame game. Even if the devil is truly tempting you, he cannot be blamed to excuse yourself from sin. Thomas Manton, again, Creatures, rather than not transfer their guilt, will cast up on God himself. They blame the Lord in their thoughts. It is foolish to cast it altogether upon Satan, to say I was tempted by Satan. Alas, if there were no Satan to tempt, we would still tempt ourselves. His suggestions and temptations would not work where there be not some intervening thought, and that maketh us guilty. Besides, some sins have their soul rise from our own corruption. It is useless to cast it upon others. Actions cannot be accomplished without our own concurrence. And we must bear the guilt. Two, lust is the mother of sin. Be consistent and constant in prayer that it gives you grace of strength to keep your heart from sin. You may not be carried away by your own lusts. Matthew six or twenty six forty one. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, Manton, Thomas Manton. A Christian's life should be spent in watching lust. Learn what need there is of great care. Pleasure. Kids, you hear that? In this world of entertainment, pleasure is the one is one of the baits of lust. It's like you send a fish hook down into the pond or lake with your bait on there. The fish go after it, so be careful. Pleasure is a bait for lust. The truth is, all sins are rooted in the love of pleasure, therefore be watchful. Lust gives birth to sin, and sin brings forth Death separating the soul from body and the spiritual death, separating the soul from God, then eternal death, separating both body and soul from God forever. 3. Repent. Turn from sin to God. Romans 13, 12-14. I'll be done here. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity, sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Let's pray. Oh God, you're such a God of mercy. We fall easily to our own sinful nature and, and to lusts, and we give in, we take our lust too far and give birth to sin. Help us to be so aware of the, the first inclination, the first emotion, a desire that appears in our hearts and our mind, that we may suppress it, that we may stomp on it. Because we love you. Because you are our Holy Father. And we want to please you. Lord, thank you for your word and your truths. Help us be a people that just takes our um, affections, shift our affections from this world to you, to your truths, to your word. That we have the pleasures, all the pleasures we need, you, for you are sufficient. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. All right, well, we invite you to uh, stick around for a fellowship.